Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape this being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, you have given us what we need. Lord, we ask that you would give us your spirit, that you would give us understanding, Lord, that we might see and hear these words of Jesus, Lord, that we might apply them to our lives, Lord, and we might have a better understanding of who you are and what you've done in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In case anyone was wondering, uh, this sermon was, this text wasn't picked because of uh, baptism this week. Uh, it was kind of funny, at small group last week, uh, they were giving me a hard time that uh, the sermon title, as we started the seven woes, was a child of hell. And I feel like it's a little bit better this week for our guests. It's a house left desolate. Not great, but still something a little bit different. Uh, but what we did was we started and we looked at Jesus' condemnation of the scribes and Pharisees in these seven very pointed woes. And these are the last words of Jesus' public ministry. They're the last words that we hear recorded in Matthew that Jesus is speaking to the crowds and not just to the disciples and not during his execution. And so we set the stage by talking about the first six woes and this condemnation being described as the total corruption of the religious leaders of the Jewish people. The scribes and, and Pharisees res, represented the religious establishment of that time. And so we, we hear scribes and Pharisees, but could also include Sadducees and chief priests and elders. See, Jesus was condemning this large group of religious leaders in Israel, bad shepherds that were scattering God's flock, leading them to hell through their religious hypocrisy. And so Jesus, the Messiah, gives this final public address. It's a scathing verdict, an ultimatum to the leaders, and a warning to the people that there will be only two sides 
the side of the Messiah, and the side of those who are against the Messiah. But the shocking thing to us and to me as I read through this is the recognition that Jesus isn't talking to the Romans or to the Gentiles, but he's talking to the Jews, that he's standing in Jerusalem, he's standing in the temple, the central place of of God's people, smack dab in the middle of the nation, the place where worshipers have come to give God glory, and they've come into his house and to the temple, this picture of God's throne room on earth. And right here at the beacon, the lighthouse of God on earth, Jesus concludes his public appearance with this horrifying assessment of the religious leaders. Today we will conclude our current series in Matthew by looking at this final woe of Jesus and his lament over Jerusalem. And what we see is that Jesus emphatically closes one door, but then points to another. That the door of the kingdom is Jesus, and that his people come to him in simple faith. That there is no other way at all. That there is no other hope. And our only hope is to come to Jesus in faith. And so for a a simple outline, it'll kind of all flow together, but for an outline for note takers, we'll be looking at three things. We'll be looking at uh, the prophets and persecution. We'll be looking at the failure of the Pharisees. And then we'll look at our only hope in Him alone. And so we begin with the prophets and the persecution. And you can see in today's passage that there's a lot of talk about prophets. And so it would be good for us to take a moment just to think about who the prophets were and what they did. See, the prophets in the Old Testament that Jesus is referring to are the the mouthpiece of God. That when God spoke to his people, he spoke directly to a prophet And then the prophet's job was to take God's word and bring it to the people. And so he would speak with God's authority the things that he had heard from God. And this would only work if the prophet came and spoke exactly the words that God had said. That they didn't add to it, they didn't subtract from it, they didn't change it, but they spoke the the words of God. You can see this in the Old Testament with the phrase, "...thus saith the Lord." when the prophets are speaking. But it's also only good for the people if they received it as the Word of God. Not as a message from a man, but as a message from God Himself. And and when God spoke blessing, the people were to rejoice and worship. And when God spoke woes or, or commanded change of His people, they were to repent. And they were to weep and put on sackcloth and ashes. So whenever the prophets spoke, the people were expected to respond in some way. There are many times in the Bible where we see this happen, where a prophet confronts someone and we see what is supposed to happen, happen. But sadly, this doesn't seem like it's the norm in the Old Testament. I mean, if we consider the experience of the prophets, there's many, many prophets in the Old Testament. But if we think about, say, Moses, for instance we recognize that his experience was really hard, and we have a bleak picture. See, Moses cried out from the weight of leading a stiff-necked, rebellious people who refused to listen to him. If you think about Elijah and Elisha, they had a unique challenge. 
in prophesying to Israel during a time of incredible wickedness. Isaiah was told that he would proclaim God's word to people who would refuse to understand, to perceive, to take heart and turn and be healed by God. And Jeremiah said, I don't even want to do this. God, don't make me do this. But God didn't give him a choice. God had called him, and God was sending him to his people. After a difficult, persecuted life as a prophet, tradition tells us that Jeremiah was martyred for speaking God's word to God's people. And so we, we see this pattern happening in the Old Testament. Uh, you can hear it in Jeremiah's temple sermon. We talked about this a few months ago, probably, when we went through um, the cleansing of the temple. And we remember that line, the den of thieves or den of robbers. Well, in that sermon, if you continue on, we see this pattern of the prophets. So God spoke through Jeremiah saying, Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you and it may be well for you. And so God comes out and he tells his people that he has a covenant relationship with them, that their identity is built in the covenant and he's calling them to remember that and to walk in his ways. But then Jeremiah continues. He says, But they did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil hearts. They went backward, not forward. From the day of your fathers who came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, the prophets to them, day after day. Yet, they did not listen. We see the same thing in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is told, the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. They will not be willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their face, and your forehead as, far, as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, have I made your forehead Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. It's an interesting statement here. God equips His prophets and gives them what we need. But how many of us, when we think about being gifted by God, think of stubbornness, of hard-headedness, of having a hard forehead like emery? Not usually something that we consider. And yet this is what the prophets needed to do their work as the prophets of God and to confront the people with the message of God. And, and there's this pattern that Jeremiah notes that God sends prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to His people to bring them back, to remind them of His promises and to call them to obedience, to call them to live according to the pattern He has set out for them. And yet over and over and over again, we see the same thing happen as the prophets are rejected. And humanly speaking, the life of the prophet was a miserable life. The writer of Hebrews in the Hall of Faith tells us that God's faithful witnesses, people like the prophets, needed to live by faith. They had to look ahead for a reward that they would not have in this life that they were strangers and exiles in this land, and they were longing, needing a country, a better country, a heavenly country. Knowing that they were exiles and strangers, we see how they were treated 
The writer tells us that some were tortured, others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth. The life of the prophet was filled with struggle because they were faithful to God's word, because they cared more about what God said than what people thought, because they feared God more than they feared man. And God loved his servants, his children, the prophets. And how does he respond to their persecutors? Well, he's enraged. I mean, we can even hear that as Jesus has just given the parable of the tenants and and it's about the master who sends the servants in and they beat them and they kill them and they mistreat them and then they end up killing his son and Jesus says, how am I to treat these wretches? And the Pharisees respond with the miserable death. Right. The prophets and the people of God are commanded not to take revenge for ourselves, but to leave it to God who is just and who will repay. Paul tells the Romans, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And this vengeance of the Lord is just, and it will be fully fulfilled. And we get a glimpse of this in Thessalonians when Paul is talking to the Thessalonians about the persecution that they're enduring. And Paul is saying, stay the course. Do what you're supposed to do and honor God with your lives. And the hope that he gives them is that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who have afflicted you as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The persecution of the prophets is near and dear to the heart of our Lord. And here in this text, we can hear this tone coming from Jesus. See, he looks at the way that the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, say that they revere and honor the prophets who have come before them. That they've set up monuments and tombs and they say to each other, we wouldn't have done that. We wouldn't have taken part with our fathers. We wouldn't kill these righteous people. But Jesus sees right through this. And Jesus is angry. He says, listen to yourselves. You admit that your fathers are murderers and that murderer blood runs through your veins. Here, listen to what he says. He says, finish what you started. Finish what your fathers have started. And he calls them serpents and a brood of vipers. See, Jesus knows what is within them because he's seen it. I mean, if you think about the latest prophet on the scene, John the Baptist, how did he respond Right? He's the one that has come to make way the, the paths for the Lord and make them straight. And when the religious leaders come to his baptism, what does he say to them? He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that was to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. It's an interesting parallel that we see here. Both John and Jesus use this same phrase, you you brood of vipers. Both of them proclaim the coming wrath of God. Both mention fathers, but John the Baptist mentions, don't consider yourselves sons of Abraham. And then Jesus places them in a line that your fathers are murderous persecutors of the prophets. And then what happens to each man? Well, the Pharisees don't believe John, and he's beheaded by Herod. And they shamefully treated Jesus and had him crucified by Pilate. See, Jesus looks at the religious leaders, says, you are just like your fathers, and you will do just what your fathers did. He tells them that in verse 34 of our text. He says, I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And in just a few days, Jesus would be falsely arrested. He would be falsely tried. He'd be humiliated and beaten, stripped and crucified. After his resurrection and ascension, his apostles would go out in the power of the Holy Spirit, ambassadors in his name to proclaim the kingdom. And how would the Jewish authorities respond to them? Well, if you look at the book of Acts, you get a pretty good idea. Starting in chapter 4, pretty much every single chapter talks about the persecution of the disciples and the apostles as they go from town to town to town and the religious authorities throw them out. We hear that Stephen was stoned and that James was killed with the sword. They planned to do the same to Peter. That Saul breathed out murderous threats And then after his conversion, he experienced great persecution, extreme persecution. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was thrown out of town. He was stoned. See, many of the letters in the New Testament were written to persecuted believers and historians chronicle for us this horrendous martyrdom that took place in the early church. He said it was the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. Jesus knew what was ahead of him and of his followers, like the prophets before him, from Abel to Zechariah, from the beginning to the end. More righteous blood would flow at the hands of this generation, and God's white-hot wrath and righteous retribution would come. And what Jesus does for us is he shows us two lines here. He shows us a continual line of the faithful from prophet to prophet to prophet through Jesus to the apostles. And then we see another line of these persecutors and those who are bent on destroying God's messengers. See, they couldn't kill God himself. But so they tried to silence his prophets instead. And generation after generation, murderers begot murderers as the seed of the serpent did war against the seed of the woman. And this pattern is something that we see and we call it uh, covenant theology. I mean, way back in the garden, the serpent couldn't touch God. And so he brought death to God's offspring through deception. But rather than executing that death sentence immediately... We see that God offers hope. And you remember what he said to the serpent in the garden. He said, I will put enmity between you 
serpent, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring, her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, as long as the world keeps turning, there is a continual battle raging between God's children and the devil. And he's a serpent, and he's a roaring lion out to destroy and to devour. But we also see the prophets and the Word of God coming to us. And we see that the Old Testament pointed forward to a Messiah, to the head-crushing snake destroyer. And prophet after prophet pointed to Jesus, telling the people, He is coming. He is coming. See, when we were separated as mankind, we were separated from God by sin. And we couldn't bridge the gap between God and ourselves. God did the unthinkable, and He came to us. I love how our confession talks about this. It tells us that God did this through a voluntary condescension which he was pleased to express by way of covenant. See, the covenant of grace freely offered to sinners for life and salvation by Jesus Christ required of them faith in him. But the Old Testament prophets and believers didn't see Jesus yet. He hadn't come in the flesh yet. So God held him out to the Old Testament believers in types and in shadows through prophecies and sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover lamb, and the temple system. See, all of these looked forward to and signified Christ to come. And that through these things, God provided them grace and a full remission of sin and eternal life through the Holy Spirit who worked in their hearts faith. Faith in a coming Savior. Like us, Old Testament saints were saved by faith as they trusted in the promises of God. However, when Christ came, all these types and shadows found their substance. They found their purpose in Him. And we find that a shift occurred. See, according to the author of Hebrews, this old covenant system was obsolete, that it was growing old and it was ready to vanish away. It had accomplished its intention, and now was ready to be replaced. And so in our passage, Jesus stands between these two covenants, between the old covenant, which was coming to an end, and the new covenant. But this overarching covenant of grace was going to run straight through the old covenant, through Jesus, and into the new covenant. And so you can almost hear Jesus saying to the scribes and the Pharisees, stop self-righteously play-acting. Stop looking at the law hypocritically. Stop looking for salvation in yourselves and look to me. Look to the fulfillment of all the things that have been twisted and truly find the God that you are claiming to serve. You can see it in in Jesus' lament as he continues in verse 37. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And the irony of that is it's city of peace. City of peace. It's anything but a city of peace. This is a city that kills its prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you as your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not come. God sent his prophets offering peace if the leaders and the people would but stop and turn and look at him in faith. 
Like chicks that are, are running around in the barnyard free and, and in comes a fox or maybe a swooping hawk. Jesus says, come to me, run to me and find protection under my wings. All they need to do is hear his voice, the voice of the shepherd and return to him. But instead what we see is this stubborn rebellion as they heaped up judgment for themselves, kicking against the goats. See, the good shepherd had come to his own but his own people did not receive him. Rather than turning and finding protection from their own sinful hearts in the coming wrath of God, they turned to their house in the physical temple. They turned to an old system, the system that cried out from the top of its lungs, look at Jesus. And they said, we want this, not you. Any system like this, any system without Jesus, is empty. That's what Jesus says in verse 38. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. This is a massive moment. This, is, this represents a huge change in what's going on here. See, the temple had never been referred to as their house. No, this was God's house. The place where God's people came to meet with God a place where his earthly throne was, a house filled with the train of his robes as his glory went out to all the earth. That even when Jesus had come to the temple days before and cleansed it, you'll remember he quoted from Isaiah where God looks at the temple and says, my house. This is God's house. But look at how emphatic Jesus is in verse 38. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. If the house is desolate, God is not there. He's not seated on his throne there. It's no longer this place of worship and prayer and, and meeting with God. And it's a, it's a picture that we have of maybe a second exile. If you remember back to the Old Testament, the people of Israel had been sent out of their land into exile. And one of the most devastating pictures, one of, one of the most horrendous things that we see that would cause the hearts to grieve of these prophets was what Ezekiel saw in this vision of God's glory leaving the temple. God left the temple in this vision. And this was the ultimate punishment. The removal of God's presence that's what Jesus is saying in his own day. That the physical temple, the old covenant system without Christ, was now a tomb. And that door was shut. But even so, we see another door is opened. A door that calls God's people to come and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth in the new covenant. See, Hebrews tells us that Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant. And it is mediated on better promises. And so he goes on to quote from Jeremiah 31, this great passage that, that lifts before the people the new covenant of God. It says, I will put my law into their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel, when he sees this, this coming of God, he speaks of it this way. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and I shall, call, I shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give your heart a flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and careful to obey my rules. This is another beautiful picture of a time that the people couldn't do it. That their, rock, their hearts are rock hard. And they refused to turn to God, to walk in His statutes, or obey His rules. And so what needed to happen? God would come and sprinkle their hearts and make them clean. God would cleanse them of their uncleanness and their idolatry. God would give them a new heart. God would put His Spirit within them and take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And their obedience that would follow would be through God's operation, through His Holy Spirit in their lives. We're reminded people are fickle. We haven't changed that much. That, that people are rebellious, dead in our sins and trespasses according to our memory work that we're doing in Ephesians. And so God saves sinners. Period. He pours out His Spirit. And He saves sinners by grace. Through a gift of faith that can't even originate inside of ourselves. We couldn't do it ourselves. And so God did it for us. The door to the kingdom was open to us in Christ alone. And so Jesus ends his public ministry with these devastating woes. They're heavy and they're hard, and they've been beating me up for two weeks. They're hard. And he's lamenting that these leaders have missed the boat. That in their zeal for God, they have gone about it in unrighteousness. And they've actually walked away in their rebellion and in their hypocrisy with murderous hearts. And we'll see this take place in a few short days. And they would put the Messiah on a cursed tree. And he would suffer the wrath and curse of God, dying a horrendous death. And punishment was coming. That God's righteous and just wrath would be poured out upon His enemies. Yet, for us, for those who look to Him in faith, we see Jesus as the door to righteousness. As our door that we may enter in. We see Jesus who is for us salvation. Who reconciles us. To God. And He's our protector who shields us, who bears our sin and takes our punishment for us. And we cry out to God, God, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot do this in and of ourselves. We need you. Save us, we pray. Hosanna. Blessed is the name of Him who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're safely nestled under His wings. That beneath His wings, we know His never-ending, unbreakable covenant love towards us will never cast us aside. We do not need to fear the woes or the punishment of God because our Savior took it on Himself in our place. That He will keep all of His promises and He will never, ever, ever let us go. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. 
We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.